Welcome to FRT episode 82. I'm Brad Carr of the IF in Washington. The pandemic continues to rage across the US, but at least we appear to have a sense of political clarity emerging here in Washington after the election. Or at least it seems that way today as we record, conscious that our circumstances have changed rapidly before and could always do so again. But to the matter at hand, and we're joined today by Anton Ruddenclough of KPMG, joining us from London. Anton is KPMG's global co-head of fintech, based in London. He's authored many expert publications that you can find on the KPMG website, as well as having led over 150 projects involving new technologies. And he brings a, a rich cross-sectoral background to our discussion, having worked with the consumer and technology sectors before moving his focus to financial services. And lastly, I should add that he's a New Zealander, so if we were back in our respective homelands, we'd be talking across the ditch, as we say, across the Tasman Sea, but instead we're speaking across the pond, across the Atlantic. Anton, thanks for joining us and welcome to FRT. Hi, it's good to be with you, Brad, and as we say in New Zealand, g'day. G'day indeed. Can I start with asking you about the, the COVID situation in London now? From abroad, we see occasional news reports about so-called lockdowns or more minor measures like the pubs closing early. Maybe that one's not so minor. But what's life and business like on the ground there at the moment? Yeah, it's, it's kind of we're in an artificial world right now. I think our, um, our government and our, our uh, Chancellor of the, uh, of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, done a great job in trying to support um, jobs and support our businesses and our SMEs, uh, as well as you know some of the, the things like our, our NHS, our health system here. We're kind of in this artificial world at the moment where that money uh, and furlough schemes and all that are propping up the economy, and you know, there's going to have to be some tough choices made next year about where the UK goes with all this, because obviously the government cannot support everyone's jobs. Um, and you know, we're going to have about three years' worth of pain, at least, I would say, as we try and move back into a, a growth trajectory and get back to our 2019 levels. So in some respects, shades of 2008, uh, we went through the last crisis. But this one, I think, will be a little deeper. And those second, third-order impacts on the economy are ones that I don't really think people are talking about at the moment. I think certainly one area that where we have been talking about that is the IAF Board of Directors, and certainly there was a big focus on the same sort of point you mentioned there of the stimulus packages that have helped to sustain the economy through the crisis quite effectively in a lot of places around the world so far, but what the future of that looks like. But thinking of this year and, and COVID, what has most stood out for you in terms of the impacts for financial institutions? It's obviously been a, a turbulent time, but but in terms of financial institutions and the ways that they service their clients, what's most stood out for you? Uh, there's probably four things. So if I take kind of the positive perspective at the, for, for a start, I think um, one of the weird things that's happened is actually senior leaders and large FIs and even the small ones like FinTech um, have actually recognised they've got people working for them and there's a real human condition about how we work in our industry, in fact, in any industry. You know, things like teamwork and genuine concern for each other and looking after each other's well-being and, and having a real authentic leadership has been a really positive outcome. So uh, I think some of the organisations out there have recognised that actually they really need to double down their skills on how they lead um, and not really go back to that kind of you know, robotic way of processing widgets and our large FIs. So in that respect, really, really good. Um, and I've seen some interesting fintech clients who have done some bizarre things like, you know, got out of their offices close them down, said we're not going back for the time being, we are a team, but 
you know, let's all operate from home and, and let's work on a, a different way of working. So those sorts of things I think have been interesting. On the other side of the coin, obviously the large financial institutions have had to digitise their processes quickly. Um, and I think that's really evident how undigital most of the large FIs still are, particularly when it comes to likes of credit processing or query management for customers or processing policies. Um, so that's been a bit of a, a wake-up for them. And I also am a little bit dismayed, if I'm honest with you, around the levels of partnerships and alliances that they've engaged with to help solve some of the problems. So you would think in this day and age, with us being vaguely digital, we would be you know, having large legacy firms in particular reaching out to external partners to help solve problems together. But what has happened, which has been both a positive and negative, is particularly the large banks and insurers just throwing people at the situation from within their own organisations to try and get through the, the struggle and the very real struggle they had earlier on this year. Um, I can really only name two organisations here in the UK that I know of firsthand who actually took the other approach and said, well, we're going to collaborate on solving this together with our partners. So it just kind of throws up an interesting lens as to the work that needs to be done, I believe, to continue sort of the digitisation of the industry and doing all the sort of new ways of working that we would talk about. You mentioned there about the ways of working and in terms of you know the empathy with employees and colleagues and the like. Also been, I think, a really important time for, for empathy with customers. And I think about a comment that Joseph Langerman of Standard Bank made in our annual meeting last month about how it had really highlighted the need for not only an increased sense of customer centricity, but indeed that sense of customer empathy including in places like the IT function or the risk function that have not been customer-facing, have not necessarily had that as a, a core ethos in the past. Have you seen much of that same sort of sense prevalent in the UK or elsewhere? It's a funny old place, isn't it? And that um, I generally think that pretty much most people in customer service roles, no matter what industry they're in, but particularly in banking and financial services, actually... I do think really instilled with great empathy and, and human condition. They may be put in processes or situations or you know, even have really poor technology, which gets in the way of it. Um, but it is funny when you're in times of crisis, when I think you do, particularly when we're all sort of apart from each other, like we are right now, you do tend to extend a little bit further to overcompensate on empathy and ways of working, and in some respects, breaking the rules, the policies that have been set for you to do the right thing. Um, so I think you know that is, I think that's been really borne out over here. You know, people talk in the UK around the blitz, uh, the blitz spirit. I wasn't around in the Second World War, obviously, but you know that was a time when the UK really pulled together. And you get into situations like this in 2020, not 1940, and that that phrase comes out again about how the UK pulls together human condition really comes to the fore and we recognise that actually a lot of the people that quite often we don't recognise, so key workers, frontline staff, actually they're the ones that really make the businesses work and and so we kind of have a bit of revisionist thinking for the time being about, you know, how we, how we ensure that empathy or listening or curiosity or innovation or all those sorts of softer skills are brought to the fore again. Um, but I'm really positive. I, I think... Um, one of the great things about digital um, is it does ask the question, what experience do you want to give your customers, corporate, retail, institutional? 
Um, and I do think that's a message of sticking with our senior leaders now. I think it's a, a great point about the, the human element and how that comes together with, with digitalization. I want to spend most of our conversation today probably focusing on, on platforms and perhaps to pivot to that from the, the events of this year. You know, do you feel that the, the transitions, the, the forced adaptation that we've seen from the COVID experience, do, do those events, do you think, have they helped to serve to accelerate the move towards platforms in financial services? Yeah, it's been tough this last year. We've got to give ourselves all credit, right? I think as a community, we've really pulled together well to get through what we needed to get through. And and we continue to. I don't think the pace has really come off, even though the kind of the, the first surge in the crisis kind of abated. But um, what's happened, I think, is that we recognise there is no foot off the pedal anymore. This, uh, <laughs> you know, the acceleration to digital is the acceleration to digital economy. It's not going back. We're not going to get less busy. So I think our ways of working, um, the fact that large institutions, I, I think, are a stark reality now, which is that if they want to be digitally fit, they're really going to have to double down on it now. It's not like a, a fun thing on the side to, to do. Um, and the other one I think that has come through is a stark reality around cost base. So you've got, I think, a high embedded cost base in mo- most of the legacy financial institutions you've got a relatively slow way of moving and changing. And then you've got a digital economy, which is speeding up and doubling down as, as we speak right now. So, you know, who's done really well out of the crisis uh, in inverted commas? It's the cloud providers and the platform providers, the platforms. It is um, those who work in digital payments um, who have done exceptionally well. Anyone who's related to data or sort of virtual services has done particularly well. And, and those types of services are intrinsically you know, agile. Um, and, and so I think there isn't a going back, and I think there isn't a choice uh, for large institutions. But the question is, how do you become a platform now? How do you do that in a safe way without risking your institution? Um, and the, the big structural shift that needs to go with that, how does that get accelerated at pace but without, again, introducing execution risk, operational risk to your legacy business. Um, so for me, I look around all the banks in the UK that I know, uh, the insurers themselves, the asset managers, you know, everybody is talking about this. How do we become a platform? And the question is, next one is, what type of platform should we be? Well, let's let's delve into some of those those types of issues. And you know, I'm particularly curious about how you see perhaps some of the different models or scenarios that might emerge. And we sometimes have the discussion about where uh, particular products from banks or insurers may be moved onto platforms that are provided by you know, big tech firms, social media companies and search engines and the like, although you have other banks that are perhaps looking to build platforms of their own within the bank. Um, interested if you could just talk through perhaps some of the, the models and scenarios that you see emerging. Yeah, sure. Um... Well, I think the first one that is commonly known is more of the embedded finance model. And so, you know, the likes of Goldman Sachs, uh, BBVA, Standard Chartered have all into the space where they take their traditional banking products under a regulated license, they package them up digitally, they present them through APIs um, to corporates or other platforms. So a good example is you see as you go around the market and you, you conduct your e-commerce Transactions as a you know consumer, 
you'll see yeah, PayPal is pretty much everywhere or Karma might be everywhere where you can pay by PayPal or Karma. Um, and so the banks um, in particular, and the insurers to a lesser degree, are looking at this as well, saying, well, should we be the embedded finance model and should we take our traditional banking products, um, create a digital layer and serve those up through large corporates like Unilever or Procter & Gamble or Amazon or Facebook or whatever? So, so that's one model that's definitely on its way and in, in kind of coming to a bank near you. Um, the second one that is kind of a derivative of that, slightly different, is you know, you're going to talk about bank as a service. And I think what they really mean there is um, the replacement of a core banking platform and building on new apps and services on the top of that. Um, and this is the likes of your Mamboos, your Tenexes, your Temenoses, who are now creating cloud-native core banking platforms, and there are versions of this for insurance, obviously, for lesser asset management. So, you know, looking to replace the core. Where they tend to be attacking the market at the moment is either, um, you know, more digital startup um, um, institutions or um, mid-sized firms that are becoming, in some respects, concerned about their ability to compete um, when scale organisations can afford the data scientists and the people that make these things work. So it'd be a second one. And then the third one, I think, is um, not quite here yet, but it will come. I think this is more true partnerships, true joint ventures. You, you remember a couple of years ago, I think, you know, JP, Morgan, um, Berkshire Hathaway, Amazon announced their, their joint venture. And I think we'll see a bit more of that happening where large organisations want to make bigger bets on new sort of platform-based business models. And I think a lot of those will be around adjacent industries. So health and well-being, food, um, I think is a big growth area for us as we've recognised through the crisis. Actually, food's pretty important to us in our lives. And I think supply chains will continue to evolve, not so much supply chain finance, but all the technology around logistics, last mile, delivery, track and trace, all that sort of stuff is really going to come into its own. So I think those alliances will be in those adjacent areas where institutions want to create sort of high barriers to entry, but also want to be able to provide hedges on traditional banking services or insurance services. And can we elaborate a bit further? Um, could you talk a bit about some of the core functionalities that, that firms, banks, insurers are going to need to be able to interact with platforms? I, I think a bit about digital identity as, as one example, and you probably uh, prompted me a little bit there when you were talking about some of the, the areas of the, uh, the other sectors of life, the adjacent um, sectors and the like, health and wellbeing, and Certainly a message that SecureKey CEO Greg Wolfen has, has really pushed to me has been within the identity space, you know, we need to think of not banking in a vacuum, but rather identity functions that are able to be operated by the consumer readily across every area where they want to be. You know, is, is, is digital identity a crucial core functionality for, for being able to work with platforms? Are, are there other particular core functionalities that you would call out? Yeah, um, that's, a re- that's a really good question. Uh, I think digital identity, a lot of frustration here. Um, you know, UK Finance, which is our banking payments association, had a go at this a few years ago. They just couldn't get the large banks to agree on common standards around KYC client due diligence, which is obviously our banking version, what I call the platinum sort of, you know, model for regulatory compliance with, you know, all the amazing sort of data that goes with that. Um, but now... 2020, after post or halfway through COVID, you know, there is a, a real buzz of activity from the banking community on how do we get digital identity to work? Because obviously, 
you want to verify the counterparty that you're trading with or doing business with as a consumer or as a commercial enterprise, and you probably won't ever see them. The, the physical is disappearing in the way of virtual. So I, I do think the financial institutions here recognise the need to do something. Likewise, the government's had a few goes at it. Identity cards being a version a few years ago that was politically unpalatable with you know, the average punter in the street here in the UK. Well, that's back again. Um, and you know, we we were involved, we KPMG were involved with Santander, uh, who else was in there? Barclays, a couple of hedge funds some years ago for number 10. So our Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, on establishing digital identity for SMEs, we felt that was critical. Again, just couldn't get the adoption. But I think where it's going to move is a set of standards that are you know, open source that can be used across the, the industry. So I don't think there'll be a kite mark. I don't think there'll be someone who owns a, a, a system. I think it'll be more of a distributed system of policies and procedures that need to be adhered to and certified with that everyone can use. And the way we've described it in the past is there's probably a variety of levels. So, you know, you can get an unverified account on PayPal, for example, or I call it a cardboard version of digital identity, or you can get a verified version. That's a bit better. Or you can have a KYC, um, AML compliant version sitting with HSBC Bank. That's probably platinum. And we will probably see these different levels of a digital identity verification evolve, and the industries will adopt them in different ways. So the highest barrier to entry for digital identity is financial services or our colleagues in real estate and property. That's where you need you know, really, really strong controls for money laundering and other purposes, bin crime. But at the other end of the spectrum, you've got someone trading with another person on eBay. That probably doesn't require the same type of verification. Um, so I think we'll see the, a variety of different standards, not one digital identity, but there'll be a commonality around how they're managed. I think here in the UK and maybe elsewhere, that'll be for the government to define in, in, in tandem with industry uh, and then apply it. But that once we see that happen, I think you know there's going to be massive digital change uh, in the way that you know that open source sort of set of standards is used by developers, by companies, even even by you know, home own, uh, home sort of sole proprietors who want to do business in different ways. Totally agree, and I, I'm really pleased. Actually, you've given me a, a great cue there in that the a lot of what you've described is is very much what the IAF's been working on together with the Open ID Foundation and and quite a lot of our member firms and identity firms around uh, the Open Digital Trust Initiative, uh, the notion of having some standardization of common open source APIs that identi identity providers and also some of the merchants, some of the small businesses that are trying to reinvent themselves in e-commerce at the moment can plug in and play and very much with an emphasis on, on interoperability. And I will quickly plug that episodes 73 and 78 uh, of FRT recently, we elaborated on, on that a lot further. But let's continue talking about what you need to be able to work with with platforms. And I, I want to now talk a bit about the, the skill sets and the capabilities. And I'm thinking here of a, a comment that Itao CEO Kanjido Brusha made during the IF Digital Interchange in September. And he talked about how Itao had sought to, to build a platform inviting other firms to be able to sell products on that platform to, to Itao's customers because they'd made a conscious judgment that they wanted to focus on distribution ahead of product, that they needed to, to stay customer-centric, and that the, the platform was, was a central key to being able to maintain that, that ownership of the customer relationship, if you like. 
But one of the other points that Kanjido raised was that this presented a whole series of new challenges around developing new skills in how you engage with third parties, that the kind of parties that you might be bringing on board uh, onto your platform and with your customers was just a different scenario, different relationships to things that they'd uh, had to engage in previously. And so Anton, I'm interested in thoughts you might have in terms of, of how well prepared the industry is perhaps for the, the platform economy in terms of the industry skill sets. Yeah, um, look, I think the um, SL guys uh, are awesome. And one of the interesting things about obviously going down to Brazil is, you know, physical cash is not a good thing to have on you. You know, <laughs> you probably get attacked in the street and the money gets taken off you. So, you know, they've digitized for a different reason down there and thought about different ways of working. And, you know, from my, my head of fintech role at the moment, I look at that market, fourth largest market for investment in fintech this year, uh, really accelerating ahead now. But um, I, I think this, from my perspective, three key things you need to recognise. One is um, mindset. I, I'm a true believer that actually um, you really can't train a mindset. It's something you have as a person, you know, kind of your tolerance for, for risk or your curiosity or the way that you sort of engage with other people. Um, and I think the mindset of um, sharing and the mindset of, you know, win-win relationships and the mindset of thinking in adjacencies um, is one that the industry needs to hire for. Much like, you know, Google hires for Googliness, the fifth element of their interview process, or, you know, Israeli Cyber Defense Force um, puts games into a, a process to hire their graduates because they want to understand how people work and pressure their mindset. This is what I think we need for platform economy. So we're going to have to change, I think, the way that, the large institutions hire people uh, and who they're hiring to, to bring a li little bit more heterogeneity or whatever it might be into the into the talent pool. That's one. Secondly, um, a big mistake I've, I've seen happen, there's been many Me Too platforms built already, but um, they've lacked the commercial skills to be able to generate flow for those platforms. In other words, the banks are actually, and the insurers are not too unadept at using tech and data to make something but then they sit there and these things do nothing. They have no customer flow. Uh, and I think there's a big kind of skills gap there on how you understand how to build partnerships, um, to build ecosystem relationships where either you are the node or you are the platform or you're just complementing someone else's, um, and how to generate, again, really good win-win relationships around those. And uh, related to that is economic models where, again, you're sharing and a portion of the net interest margin or the fees, you're not actually taking all of it, or you're sharing a clip of a ticket on API usage. That's not understood yet. So the whole commercial area, I think, is very nascent and needs to be developed. And then the final one, um, back to mindset behaviours. Um, I went to see a bank in New Zealand a wee while back called the Bank of New Zealand. It's now owned by the Aussies. In fact, they're all owned by the Aussies in New Zealand. But it's a small bank, 60,000 SME customers in New Zealand. And not, not too shabby for New Zealand standards. They had a team there that signs up for partnerships, and they're very, very specific on who they sign up. The team is only rewarded if the partner, the other entity, not the bank, meets their, their own business objectives through that partnership, and the person within the bank achieves the bank objectives. If the bank gets their objectives achieved and the partner doesn't, that person doesn't get their bonus or their reward. And I... And I do believe that that type of model needs to mature into our market. And we might talk around ecosystems or partnerships. Really what we mean is how much can we get out of this relationship ourselves? 
Whereas Bank in New Zealand, I think, is inspired. Um, there's only eight in the team, by the way. They're quite small. But, you know, that inspired idea of you only win if I win and our customers win, obviously, is the other side of the, of the equation. That is new. And I think that's going to take a, not a generational shift, but it'll take a wee while for that type of thinking to permeate through legacy financial institutions and for us to build up a cadre of people who are really good at this. Um, one of my mates is a, a CEO of a unicorn fintech here. And I asked him how he was going, and he said, look, I can't find salespeople who sold core banking platforms around the world that are in the cloud to financial institutions. And the answer is no one's ever done it before. So he said it's going to take him a good 10 years to actually craft those salespeople himself. Does this all make sense? I feel that we're kind of in a transition state, mindset, skills, and the ways that we work are all part of that transition. And I think it'll take a wee while for these types of things to become perfected by our industry. Anton, I think that's a, a great perspective. And I think you, you link there, I think, back to the, the point you were describing earlier about the, the reactions to COVID this year and there needing to be a greater emphasis on partnerships. Uh, and I think it's, it's great how you're able to highlight that in the context of the, the move to the platform economy also. Um, and personally, I'm very pleased that you bring up BNZ. Um, my first job out of university, I actually worked for BNZ's small Australian arm right at the time of its integration into the National Australia Bank Group. I, uh, I was assessing mortgage applications for, for BNZ Australia once upon a time. So some personal affinity and great to see the, the job that Angela Menthus and her team at BNZ are, are doing there now. Um, perhaps if we continue, I, I mentioned at the outset that you have a diverse background in the sectors that you've worked with across corporates in the consumer sector, as well as in financial services. When you look across the broader economy, do you see a greater blurring of the lines between financial services firms and other corporates? You know, for instance, with more corporates getting into what has been otherwise traditionally considered the, the financial domain? Yeah, um, I, I do. And yeah, in some respects, Brad, you and I are very lucky, right? Because we come from comparatively small countries. And I think at least I'm brought up to, I was brought up to be a generalist. We couldn't afford to be specialists in New Zealand, just not enough people going around. Probably the same in Australia to a lesser degree. But when you come now a few years later from that and you, you recognize that actually working with an entertainment media, retail, with car companies, and now you're in financial services um, and you're thinking around how financial services through technology is bleeding into other sectors. You know, I think being a generalist in this, in this environment is, is, is quite a good thing. And if you've got a diverse background cross-sector, I think going forward, this is going to be a really good benefit rather than being deep and specialist in one because you can actually join up the, the opportunities, requirements, the use cases, the patterns between what I call the real economy and financial services quite easily. So the interesting thing for me at KPMG with our client base I spend a third of my time in legacy, FIs, a third of my time with technology firms, and a third of my time now with supermarkets, car companies, consumer, packaged goods, the digital platforms that we refer to on the, in this conversation. So I think the convergence of the industries is really driven by technology, and the technology is then driving the economic changes to businesses, margin compression, margin pressure and the ability for large organisations to feel like they own the customer relationship. Everyone is, is circling for primacy of that. We've all taken the leaps out of Amazon's book, which is to not really worry about what sector you operate in, but just provide excellent digital customer journeys for a lifestyle event, for an activity or for a process. And so I think 
that is the opportunity for us at the moment. I look at the adjacent sectors that have really been invested in heavily this year, as I mentioned earlier on, so health, food technology, agriculture, cloud, AI, machine learning, supply chain technology, logistics and distribution. Um, these are all the areas which I think um, really are becoming part of legacy financial services and equally the legacy is becoming part of their sectors. So I look at things like Singapore Airlines. They used to have a loyalty program. They now have a digital wallet for their loyalty program, but you can actually pay real money or funny money, loyalty money um, through that wallet, multi-currency, multi-bank, uh, disintermediating credit cards and banks. You've then got Uber doing the same thing at the moment for their drivers, for their logistics providers, and then ultimately it'll be for their customers. Um, and then I think around the likes of supply chain finance, um, traditionally something that was reserved for large banks or in some respects trade credit insurers, um, but now it's actually being developed within the likes of InBev or Airbus or Boeing where they're providing their own programs, in-house program Siemens, another one, you know, developed out of Siemens Financial Services. So this blurring of the sectors is a, a massive opportunity, I think, for financial services. If we rethink how we're trying to serve customers in the distribution routes, a bit like what you said, um, Brad, on ITO earlier on, it's all around the distribution. Yeah, I think also, I think the, the regulatory community is perhaps starting to tackle some of these issues in a more uh, common approach uh, in, the, in the views in terms of consumer data, for instance, across sectors. One of the, the hidden things that I thought was striking in the, the US election, buried away behind the presidential and congressional elections, these little state-level referenda that occur. There was a really interesting one in Massachusetts about giving consumers the control of the data from the telematics in their vehicles. Uh, and that this needs to now be shared through a format of open APIs that can be accessible through uh, mobile apps from different repairers and from the individual themselves. It pretty much sounded like open banking to me, um, but applied in a, in a very different context to, to where we've seen it. And, and maybe just a sign that there's the data economy is, is needing to, or is starting to perhaps see uh, some of that convergence you described, not only uh, on the part of the, the active market players, but also perhaps in the way that regulators and governments think about data. I agree. You've obviously got in Australia the Consumer Data Act, which does just that across industry sectors, not just banking. Mm. And the funny thing is, here in the UK, we're going to adopt that same standard. So I totally agree with you. I think this freeing up of the data uh, will be a big, big game changer. A couple of other things I'd like to raise with you just to conclude. Um, firstly, I understand you've been doing some very interesting analysis for Her Majesty's Treasury in the UK and, and similarly in Singapore, reviewing the fintech sector. Interested in, in how that work has helped to inform your impressions of, of how much the legacy industry faces disruption and the overall impacts of that in terms of social good? Yeah, um, four key findings for you. Um, this is the magic of KPMG on this review, by the way. Um, so the so first one is... Um, General agreement from the legacy advice, the big eight here in the UK, our eight largest, they're really about up to about 60% of their business model will be up for disruption or change or, or you know, significant transformation by 2030. So this, what we're really talking about is how do they make money and how will digital help them make money in different ways, um, not so much the automation of the industry. So um, yeah, that kind of blew me away that people are very open about this. Um, and where that, that change or disruption or opportunity comes from, that's a different story, but it, it, it's coming. Um, we've measured the gross value added off the back of that, 
um, for the UK at least anyway. Um, the UK really wants to extend its leadership in fintech. And what we can see is a very strong correlation between the exporting of the things I was talking about earlier on, embedded finance, platform-type services around the world, which will have a, a significant impact on our GDP. So we're predicting with a small amount of investment, you know, we can move our GDP by 1% or 2% through the exporting of digitised financial services. Um, and half of that GDP growth will be direct into financial services, employment, services that wrap around the provision of those, and half will be the indirect impact into the real economy that um, that financial services creates. Uh, in terms of pensions, um, we are really working hard to try and encourage asset managers and pension providers to invest in fintech, financial technology, or otherwise. Um, and the estimations that Oliver Wyman have done there uh, recommends a 5 to 7% uptick in returns to pension holders when they retire if um, we can get more investment into this particular part of the sector, mainly because they're higher return, higher multiples, uh, although they do you know, offer high risk, um, but a really good societal benefit there. And the final one um, is a company called Fair by Design here. It's a social enterprise working at Bristol University. They've been talking around the poverty premium for some time. So if you're poor in here in the UK, the bottom one and a half million customers uh, or people in the UK, um, you pay £500 more a year in fees and costs to be poor. Um, the access to financial services and other services um, is not there. And directly involved in that is roughly about £100 for the higher cost of credit. So we've been looking at, well, you know, how can you get digital technology um, supported across the entire banking community? And we think that will really reduce down, maybe not £500, but we could at least shave £300 off as an industry for poor people who are being, you know, kind of penalised because they're poor and unattractive as a kind of allowable cost to the marketing community. Um, and linked to that also then is the vulnerability index of our UK consumers. So at the moment, we have about 8 million customers we would call vulnerable right now. That's probably going to go up off the back of COVID. Um, and of the 8.2 million vulnerable customers, 5.2 million at the moment are digitally excluded. So they don't have access to mobiles or fast broadband or whatever. These are things that we're highlighting as well to support financial services. The government needs to put more infrastructure. And there's a, quite a nice business case here in some respects to actually provide these services to people to reduce the total cost to them and then also to the UK economy and have a healthier UK economy. So all these things I take heart from, I think they're all positive things for our industry as we go through change. Not easy to navigate, but, you know, a really good, I think, set of use cases for the industry to step up to. Yeah, some great examples there of, of some of the social opportunity. And you, you used the term mindset earlier, and it reminded me about how uh, CIB Egypt's former chairman Hisham Azal Arab in one of our recent events spoke about how the mindset shift of, uh, of previously thinking of branches and bricks and mortar and increasingly now thinking of devices had been so dramatic in in changing the cost economics of, of a whole broad swathe of the population. But lots of people, particularly in remote and rural areas that were just never viable, never profitable for the bank before, suddenly are. Uh, and I hope that we can all continue to build on, on those sort of opportunities. Um, finally, Anton, if I could ask you to crystal ball a little bit as we look into to 2021, 
What do you think are some of the major potential developments and trends that we should be looking out for? Uh, well, first one, I think um, the new hot phrase is decacorns. So, you know, everyone talks around unicorn, sort of billion-dollar value tech startups or whatever. Um, certainly what we see in the U- UK is 10 billion valuation companies, and that's what our government's going after. So decacorn, I think, will be the new buzzword for next year, as everyone likes like to have new buzzwords in the space. Um, secondly, I think the regulators have an interesting part to play. Um, our UK regulators um, have done an excellent job in navigating the, you know, kind of innovation versus protection conundrum that we all have. Um, but I think they'll need to step up a little further. And I mentioned poverty premiums earlier on. I think there is a responsibility from government to actually force financial services if they won't do it themselves to be able to to be a bit more democratised in the way that they uh, bring people in who have been financially excluded. So that'll be a a hot topic as we go through further vulnerability and we feel the impact of um, loss, lost jobs, you know, businesses that haven't, haven't worked out well, etc. That's another one. Um, we haven't talked on this particular um, uh, podcast, but central bank digital currencies, um, what, what, a, what a place. Um, and obviously China and, and France and, and Europe next year will be you know, launching their, their new central bank digital currencies. So, and that'll be interesting to watch this space on and see what evolves around that. And then the final one I'd say is um, industry initiatives around post-COVID, whether that's recapitalization, the formation of good and bad banks for all of our economies to be able to help um, you know, take some of the ways of failure and, and support. And then also I think a really active participation from our governments in supporting the retraining, the rebehavioralization of our SME community. Um, we know that there are many business models out there that you know, will not survive digitization. So uh, I think you know, our governments will need to step on in and help those who have legacy business models convert to digital business models as quickly as possible. Um, so those are my kind of my, my areas. Um, I do think right back to the beginning of our conversation, human condition, I'd love to see a lot more joy next year as well. I think you mentioned the election result in the US will definitely help with joy. Um, but it would be good to see you know, we, the fact that we continue to think about ourselves as humans with emotions and families and that financial services continues. You know, the good, good work that's happened this year to recognise that and be a real people-centred industry. I think one of the, the struggles through 2020 has been that at times it's felt like there has not been a light at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully, some of the recent vaccine developments, uh, and hopefully, if we can get through the uh, the northern hemisphere winter without uh, too much further human damage, then uh, then hopefully that positions us that we can start to see a, a light at the end of the tunnel and something to move forward to. Um, thanks, Anton. It's been a great discussion. I've I've made a lot of notes, and I, I normally like to to try and summarise some of my top key takeaways. I'm not sure that I'm going to have time to to do all of them, uh, but I am going to call out a couple that, that that stuck with me, and I thought in particular you. You know, I like the fact that you you started with talking about the one of the impacts through COVID about how we work and how we lead. It reminds me that that in the early stages of the the lockdown uh, or the work from home scenario, and I was doing a bit of, of canvassing with with some of the the chief digital officers around the world, and one of the things I was often hearing was we have adapted to work from home very quickly and very easily, but there's challenges that we need to learn and upskill in how we lead from home and how we lead and manage our teams, and that's been. I think part of the learning process through this year, but linking that to to more broadly, you've talked about a lot of the the human element in terms of of partnerships and and the mentality and and the mindset. 
and I, I liked when we were talking about uh, the you know some of the key focus uh, or key attributes that you need to have in being able to work with the platform economy that that mindset of sharing that mindset of thinking of the adjacent and when you talked about how you build an ecosystem how you build win-win relationships economic models that support that in terms of the revenue sharing it's a fascinating example I thought you raised about the the BNZ partnerships case which is one that we might look at a bit further um, but I think that that you you really emphasize that notion of uh, that partnership mentality, which, uh, as you described, through the COVID crisis, some firms have probably done well and, and others have not and have, have been more insular. Uh, and that probably drives uh, part of the, the challenge ahead of, of what we as an industry all need to work on. But it was an interesting point about the interesting the, uh, the increasing uh, convergence across industries. Very interesting that you're spending so much of your time with car manufacturers and supermarkets and the like. And the point we discussed about how this convergence is increasingly happening for, for data regulation as well. And then lastly, some, some fascinating things to look for. The, the term decacorns, I, I had not heard that before, but it's one that uh, I'll take your cue that we're going to be hearing a lot more about that with the, uh, the, the criterion of the, the $10 billion or $10 billion valuation companies. The, the point about the, the drive to, towards greater financial inclusion, or perhaps it'll be about preventing exclusion um, as, as part of the, the economic crisis from COVID. Makes me think a bit about a comment that uh, Carlos Torres Villa, the BBVA chairman and, and co-chair of our Digital Finance Steering Committee, uh, made a couple of months ago that in the rush to digitalisation, one of the key key things that he emphasises, that BBVA emphasises, is about ensuring that we don't leave the most vulnerable behind. And I think you've given, a, Anton, a, a good reminder and a good underline to, to that. And lastly, CBDCs. I totally agree. I think within the realm of digital currencies, that's the the most striking uh, uh, and impactful part. Uh, we'll be continuing to look at some of the issues around what it means for bank funding stability, for instance, the potential disintermediation, um, some key design considerations there. But lastly, I really like the point you made about the retraining of the SME community. And we do see a lot of SMEs that have had to very hurriedly try and reinvent themselves as e-commerce businesses this year. Um, it's a sector that is a very high employer in so many countries around the world, um, and the path forward for a lot of them is, is going to be uh, an interesting one that we all collectively need to give a lot of attention to. So, so thank you, Anton. As I said, I, you've given a lot of, of uh, great insights there, and, and I've just reiterated a small subset of that. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on FRT. You're very welcome. My pleasure, Brett. Take care. And looking ahead on FRT, just a few things I want to highlight. Uh, we're going to debrief the IIF Machine Learning Model Governance Survey. We've got some fascinating insights on how banks and insurers are handling the controls and support of those models uh, from the survey we've done of 66 firms around the world. And my colleague Natalia Bailey will take the reins and lead us through that one. We're also going to look at connectivity between some of the new payments initiatives around the world. We're going to speak with Terry Angelos, Visa's Global Head of Fintech on how Visa is working to link some of those localised or domestic initiatives together internationally. And we're going to talk more about anti-money laundering and financial crime with Adrian De La Casa of Unicredit. Stay safe. Please join us for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for joining us on FRT.